You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning. Welcome to today's conference, hashtag cyberspace IRL, rule of law approaches to virtual threats. And welcome to the United States Institute of Peace. I'm David Young. I'm USIP's Vice President for Applied Conflict Transformation. Our Center for Applied Conflict Transformation uh, tests innovative approaches to peace building. As many of you may know, USIP was founded by Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan national institute dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential to US and global security. USIP pursues this vision by working on the ground with local partners, local peace builders, we provide governments and civil society organizations with the tools, knowledge, and training to manage conflict so it doesn't become violent and to resolve it when it does. For many decades, I've had the honor to work at the intersection of peace, human rights, democratic governance, and the rule of law. So I'm particularly pleased this morning to welcome all of you to discuss the role of the rule of law in the face of, a, of virtual threats globally. We are particularly pleased to be co-hosting this important event today with the American Bar Associ Association's Rule of Law Initiative. I'd like to thank my USIP colleague, Philippe LaRue-Martin, and his colleague, Chelsea Dreyer, for working with our ABA colleagues on this important event. I'd also like to thank Alberto Mora and Judge Margaret McEwen for their great leadership of the ABA Rowley Project. For over a quarter century, ABA's Rule of Law Initiative has promoted the rule of law and democratic governance around the world. Rule of law approaches to virtual threats. Of course, this is a timely event and an important topic. Anyone working on managing conflict today cannot do so effectively without truly understanding the ways in which technology can either support or hinder peace building. It's clear that technology presents new opportunities for peace building. Many peace builders have indeed successfully used social media to coordinate demonstrations against oppressive governments. Other peace builders have developed software applications to expose corruption and hold governments more accountable. And blockchain technology offers new opportunities to instill greater transparency in the delivery of essential public services or humanitarian assistance to populations in crisis. Yet, at the same time, technological platforms are also being used to promote violent extremism to spread misinformation, and to undermine electoral processes, often significantly destabilizing fragile or conflict-affected societies. In addition, several 
Powerful countries are integrating particularly invasive technologies, such as facial recognition, to manage security risks at home, and are exporting and promoting these new models of intrusive government, governance. These models are increasingly at odds with human rights standards. And many illegal trafficking networks, often deeply embedded in local conflicts, have been strengthened also by technology. Therefore, peace-building organizations like ours, like the United States Institute of Peace, have a significant interest in understanding the various ways in technology impacts violent conflict. That's why we're particularly excited to be working with the ABA Roley today. We're happy to be partnering on this important effort with them. The law, domestic and international law alike, is an essential tool to help preserve the opportunities offered by technology. And the law is also an essential tool to protect societies from these risks. Today, you'll hear from many experts, from governments, from the private sector, from civil society, who are expert on these virtual threats. They'll discuss with you issues like protecting data security, preserving online freedom, countering hate speech on social media, deploying technology to combat human trafficking, and most generally, to set more effective legal norms for cyberspace. So with all these experts in-house, including all of you in the audience, I invite you to make new networks in our struggle against these virtual threats. Through these connections, we'll advance our combined efforts. And I offer to you the strong partnership between the United States Institute of Peace and the American Bar Association's Rule of Law Initiative as a good example of partnership uh, in this common endeavor. So now I'd like to welcome to the podium Mr. Alberto Mora. He is ABA Rowley's uh, executive director. He's one of our community's great champions for human rights and the rule of law. Welcome, Alberto. Thank you for your leadership. Good morning, all, and thank you, David, for the introduction, and, and thank you for partnering with the uh, American Bar Association Rule of Law Initiative in sponsoring today's conference. Um, I'm uh, particularly pleased to be here in the Frank Carlucci Auditorium, by the way, since uh, when I graduated from college 45 years ago, Frank was my first boss at the U.S. Embassy in, in Portugal and remains actually very much one of my uh, mentors over, over the decades. And, and not to get on a somber note, but to touch on a somber note, uh, those of us in the American Bar Association family learned of the death of Sandy D'Alembert, uh, who was also a mentor to many of us, an example, and a great leader, and a giant in American law and in the American Bar Association. So it's a somber note, but Sandy would be delighted that we're holding this conference today on this particular topic and continuing the work that he, um, he led over so many, so many years. Um, I'm delighted uh, to open this conference uh, on behalf of the American Bar Association in my role as uh, Executive Director for Global Programs and Director of the Rule of Law Initiative. Since its inception in 1878, the American Bar Association has been partnering with governments and non-governmental organizations, not only to support the development of the American legal community, uh, but also to advance human dignity through the promotion of the rule of law. Uh, 
This conference is the latest manifestation of the ABA's history of convening some of the finest thinkers to tackle some of the most complex and vexing problems we face in the United States and around the world. And the problems we are discussing in this conference uh, are indeed in that category. Every day, we're reminded of the pervasive threats in cyberspace and how bad actors online have an impact IRL. As the young people in our office say, which of course, as I just learned a couple of days ago, stands for in real life, or, or so they say. Uh, so I'd like every, to welcome everybody to this year's American Bar Association's Rule of Law annual conference on contemporary rule of law issues entitled Hashtag Cyberspace IRL Rule of Law Approaches to Virtual Threats. This is our third annual issues conference, a time each year which we take a step back uh, from the day-to-day -day implementation of rule of law development program in more than 50 countries to reflect on that work to learn on what we're learning and to convene experts from whom we can learn and together strengthen the rule of law and governance communities. Um, we're delighted that you're here to help us in this work and let me say a few words of acknowledgement uh, to the many people who have helped make this conference possible. First, um, to set the stage for this work, we commissioned a paper on the topic uh, in ABA Rowley's paper series and I want to commend co-authors Mary Greer, of the ABA uh, Rowley Research Evaluation and Learning Division, and Tara Moborowski um, uh, of ABA Rowley. They've done a masterful job of condensing a survey of series of difficult interrelated issues. And second, I'd like to recognize uh, Dr. Linda Bishai, uh, ABA's Director of Research, um, who has led this effort from the beginning uh, and will be working to see that we're learning from this conference uh, and uh, we, that learning is captured and incorporated in our, in our future work. With the help of Rapporteur's notes uh, and under Linda's direction, we will compress the learning from today into a conference report and recommendations will be posted to our website along with a video of each of today's panels. Linda, uh, if you would please stand up uh, with members of our outreach and conference working group uh, and stand. Uh, these are the folks who have made this conference uh, possible. I'd also like to recognize the ABA Rowley Board of Directors, led by our chair, Judge Margaret McEwen, and its program committee, led by Judge Jamie Baker. Um, their insights, advice, and comments were invaluable in developing this initiative, and we're honored that so many of them could be with us today. We also have the privilege of having with us the president of the American Bar Association, Bob Carlson, and I think Judy Paris Martinez, the president-elect, uh, is also in the audience, who will be coming uh, shortly. Um, their presence is evidence of the importance that the ABA places on this topic and our work to contribute to the rule of law approach to this debate. Let me also say a big thanks to the dozens of ABA Rowley uh, volunteers, staff, interns who also have participated in making this conference possible. Uh, finally, let me thank uh, the ABA co-sponsors and their members, ABA Standing Committee on the Law and National Security and the A Criminal Justice uh, Section. And with that, let me invite uh, the chair of the Rowley Board, Ninth Circuit Judge uh, Margaret McEwen, to the podium to say a few words and uh, introduce our keynote speaker. Thank you all so very much. Good morning and thank you, Alberto. On behalf of the ABA Rule of Law Board of Directors, 
I also thank all of you for coming to join in this conversation today. One of the strengths of the ABA over the years has been convening different stakeholders, and that's what we've done today. We have here, if you look around and meet your neighbors, everyone from international organizations and law enforcement. We have lawyers and non-lawyers, private sector, donors, implementers, academics, and practitioners. So our goal today is to take a look at these complex issues, but to do it through a rule of law lens. So here's the question that we will pose today and that our speakers will in various ways be addressing. That is, what do rule of law frameworks and interventions offer us in terms of grappling with some of these cyber complexities? You all know that in general, uh, virtual threats are often dealt with in the framework of security. But we want to look at today is ways in which rule of law approaches are really at the center of dealing with these issues, whether it's in terms of, of strengthened frameworks for either defining crimes or harnessing global cooperation, or in terms of an architecture of how rule of law intersects with these cyber issues, looking at ways to have protection of both civil and political rights, freedom on the internet. So we think the rule of law community has a very different and very positive perspective to offer on this. Obviously today, these issues of cyber are front and center, but I'd like to put them in context in terms of a temporal scope. In the early 1990s, with the fall of the Soviet Union, the ABA Rule of Law Initiative was born, first in Eastern Europe, and then we spread to all of the continents. So that's the early 1990s. Recall that the internet was not in common currency until probably the mid-1990s. And the first time our US Supreme Court dealt with the internet was not until 1997 in the case of ACLU v. Reno related to the online protection of children on the internet. That was 1977, 1997, and of course since then, the floodgates have just opened and we've gone from there. So I think we have a lot to learn from each other today, and I thank you in advance for this important conversation. Very fortunate for us, we're extremely pleased to welcome a prominent voice in this arena to be our uh, keynote and kickoff speaker. That's Sujit Raman. He is currently the Associate Deputy Attorney General in the US Department of Justice. Here he is advising not only the Attorney General, but many others in their oversight of our country's cyber-related criminal and national security issues. He's also, before that, was a line prosecutor, so he's seen it from the bottom all the way to the top in terms of his job. And he also represents the Department on Cyber Matters, both before the National Security Council, at the White House, and other agencies in the US government. So he has a very unique perspective to offer us, and I now thank you for coming and ask uh, Sujit to please join us and welcome him. Thank you. Good morning. It truly is a privilege for me to be here this morning, uh, and I am honored to follow to the podium three prominent defenders of the rule of law, both at home and abroad, 
Uh, thank you, Judge McEwen, for those uh, kind words of introduction. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mora and Dr. Young, for your comments as well, and for dedicating your lives to upholding and promoting the ideal of the rule of law. Our theme today is the rule of law in cyberspace. No topic could be more timely, and no domain poses a greater threat to America's public safety and national security. As the Director of National Intelligence observed earlier this year, our adversaries and strategic competitors will increasingly use cyber capabilities, including cyber espionage, attack, and influence to seek political, economic, and military advantage over the United States and its allies and partners. The threat isn't limited to state actors. FBI Director Chris Wray informed Congress last fall that we also face sophisticated cyber threats from hackers for hire, organized crime syndicates, and terrorists. Not only do these threat actors constantly seek to access and steal our nation's classified information, trade secrets, and technology, they also strike, seek to strike our critical infrastructure and to harm our economy. Reading quotes like this, you might think cyberspace is the 21st century equivalent of the 19th century Wild West. It's true that actors in ungoverned physical spaces aim to spread instability around the globe, including through cyber means. But much of the world's cyber instability today is caused by actors who live in tightly governed spaces, authoritarian nations like China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. These nations actively work to destabilize the US-led international order, thereby promoting and advancing their own geopolitical interests. I'd like to use my time with you this morning to discuss three interrelated ideas. The first is that we have moved into a new era of great power competition. In its early years, the internet's openness seemed to represent an unvarnished good that would promote free thinking and human rights around the world, defeat authoritarianism, and drive the growth of new markets. Today, that vision, unfortunately, has darkened. Our adversaries have used the internet to exercise control over their own populations, and they've leveraged cyberspace's open and unregulated character to threaten our economic and national security, narrow our nation's strategic advantage, and attempt to undermine our values. The second idea relates to the importance of law in the new age of great power competition. International law, that is, uh, the law governing the relationships between sovereign states, applies in cyberspace and could serve as a stabilizing force in this new era. But international law in this context is still in its infancy, and many of the details remain to be worked out. The reality is that states often tend to follow their own rules, especially in the gray zone between peace and war, uh, where so much of today's great power competition is taking place. For that reason, I will emphasize U.S. domestic law and the important role that the U.S. Department of Justice, in particular, plays in defending the rule of law in cyberspace and in promoting global cyber norms. Finally, I'll briefly address a characteristic aspect of the new era in great power competition. That is, foreign adversaries' weaponization of information 
in their attempts to sow discord in our society, undermine our democratic values, and disrupt the rule of law within our own borders. I'll explain how our domestic legal traditions empower us in this brave new era. And I'll leave you with this thought. Under the Constitution, we are not powerless to confront and to counter other nations' covert, deceptive misuse of cyberspace in their efforts to turn our free speech ideals against us. Now, cyberspace was once seen as a medium for accelerating the spread of liberal values. As Ira Magaziner, President Clinton's internet czar, observed in 1999, the internet is a force for the promotion of democracy because dictatorship depends upon the control of the flow of information. The internet makes this control much more difficult in the short run, he wrote, and impossible in the long run. In addition, Magaziner stated, the internet will promote better understanding among nations and will be a tremendous force for improving education. Many thoughtful people shared those views, which in one form or another animated the internet governance policies of the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations. To be sure, technology firms experienced tremendous growth in those years, and the networked, interconnected world did draw closer together creating obvious benefits. But since then, we've learned that many of the policy choices made in the internet's infancy sowed the seeds of that early vision's destruction. To understand why, it's useful to consider the internet's structure. The way our defense strategists sometimes conceive of it, cyberspace is composed of three interdependent layers, physical, logical, and persona. Hardware and tangible infrastructure comprise the physical layer. The human beings who develop a digital representation of, the, of themselves, such as an email address or a social media profile, to participate in interconnected activity comprise the persona layer. In the middle is the logical layer, in essence, the internet's nervous system. Colloquially, we think of this layer as code. This is where data exists. It's also what links network nodes together as packets of information travel around the world. To promote rapid growth and universal connectivity, those who shaped the internet prioritized the logical layer's openness, speed, and mutability. They did not prioritize its security. Many internet protocols simply assumed that every other computer on the network could be trusted. Thus, for all of its benefits, this open structure also came with a cost. It wasn't long before our adversaries began using this aspect of the internet's openness against us. At the same time, the internet has never been truly borderless in the sense of being completely undifferentiated. As Jack Goldsmith observes, the very notion of an internet implies fragmentation. As data packets move from one connected network to another, they can be filtered and routed based on various attributes, including the source of the data and its destination. Authoritarian nations have used filtering to control the content of the data that enters and exits their borders and to monitor and censor what moves around within them. China's Great Firewall is probably the most notorious example. 
Russia's reported plans to unplug from the global internet fall into the same category, as do that nation's repeated calls in international fora for greater information security. Thus, the growth of the internet actually fortified illiberal regimes hold over their citizens and empowered those governments in new and alarming ways. Taken together, these trends have fundamentally reoriented international relations. Over the past few years, our competitors have used cyberspace to consolidate authority at home while accessing our information and intruding into our affairs in ways they could never do in a purely physical world. All the while, they have carefully sought to operate below the threshold of the use of force so as not to trigger an armed US response. Nevertheless, their tactics have increasingly become assertive. As General Paul Nakasone, the commander of US Cyber Command observes, 10 years ago, cyber threats were primarily about other nations engaging in espionage by coming into our networks and stealing information. That activity was serious enough. The situation turned for the worse, starting in 2013, when our adversaries began disrupting a series of networks within the United States, often targeting and victimizing private parties. From the denial of service attacks that Iran launched against our financial sector, to the destructive attack it launched against an American casino, from North Korea's targeted attack on Sony Pictures, to its reckless propagation worldwide of the WannaCry ransomware, from Russia's spread of the destructive NotPetya malware to the information operations it has launched against its adversaries around the world, and from China's mass theft of US government personnel data to that nation's sustained campaign of intellectual property theft, our adversaries, in General Nakasone's words, have mounted continuous, nonviolent cyber operations that produce cumulative strategic impacts by eroding US military, economic, and political power without reaching a threshold that triggers an armed response. This, in a nutshell, is what we mean when we say that great power competition has revived and that its locus has shifted to cyberspace. Both the latest national security strategy and the national cyber strategy identify a number of priority actions to ensure that America remains safe in this new era. Law enforcement plays an important role in our shared all of government effort. At the US Department of Justice, our primary missions include enforcing federal criminal law and protecting national security. Combating cyber crime and cyber enabled threats to our nation rate among our highest priorities. For many years, we've targeted and successfully disrupted transnational criminal syndicates engaged in cybercrime, as well as the digital infrastructure those actors employ. More recently, we began publicly charging foreign state actors whose malicious cyber activity broke US law. It's fair to ask why we devote significant resources to prosecuting state actors whom we may never bring to the United States to face justice. And it's equally fair to ask why we shifted from an approach that relied mainly on intelligence collection and diplomacy to one that includes a law enforcement response. As I will explain, 
Prosecutions of state-sponsored malicious cyber activity serve an important purpose. Even if we can't guarantee that we'll be able to produce in court every individual involved. Since the indictment of Chinese PLA officers in 2014, the Department of Justice has remained focused on state-sponsored criminal activity that targets U.S. companies. We are also now focused on activity that targets the U.S. political process. In the past two years, the Department brought more national security cyber cases against criminals acting on behalf of our major adversaries than in the previous five years. There are several reasons for the increasing prosecutions. The main one is that we are following the threat, just as we did in responding to the threat of terrorism. As I've explained, nation states are engaged in activity that victimizes individuals and companies in the United States, violates US law, and departs from international norms of responsible state behavior, norms that benefit all nations. Our criminal cases reflect our adversaries' efforts to harm our companies and our nation. Second, the increasing number of national security cyber cases reinforces the lesson that our adversaries' conduct lies outside the norms of responsible behavior. The actions we highlight in, in indictments are not legitimate statecraft. They are crimes without justification in international relations. I'll say more about that in a moment. Third, our cases reflect our increasingly sophisticated ability to attribute this criminal conduct to the individuals and states involved. This ability is closely related to my second point because it shows the commitment of our law enforcement and intelligence agencies to work closely together while protecting intelligence sources and methods. These partnerships, which were forged in the counterterrorism context, serve to solidify the consensus that a law enforcement response to malign nation-state cyber activity makes sense. In bringing these cases, we're guided by six basic principles. First, the department has a duty to enforce our laws and protect our people. We cannot refuse to act when foreign state actors violate our criminal laws, transgress established norms, and victimize our citizens. That is especially true when such crimes often represent severe violations of the victim's privacy rights and can have lasting, damaging impact. The department has an obligation to work toward a future where our citizens can live and conduct their business with confidence in the integrity of their information and institutions. Second, attribution is the key to deterrence. Without attribution, there will be no consequences and thus no deterrence. Attribution through the criminal justice system escalates the stakes for state-sponsored activity in a way that a press release or a public statement alone would not. We have on occasion obtained custody of foreign criminal defendants. Our indictments limit their travel and the prospect of criminal indictment can help deter some cyber actors from engaging in such conduct in the first place. And this can make it more difficult for states to recruit the manpower and resources for cyber attacks and raise the cost of engaging in a malicious cyber activity. Third, attribution through the criminal justice system is a powerful way to expose state conduct that violates norms of responsible behavior. 
It complicates our adversaries' attempts to feign ignorance of illegal acts they thought could be taken in secret or to hide behind public denials. Our cases are governed by well-known policies relating to the conduct of all federal prosecutors. An indictment is brought by a grand jury under established procedures. Charges are brought only when the facts and law justify it. The allegations in our indictments are thorough and detailed, and we can prove them in a courtroom using admissible evidence at proof beyond a reasonable doubt. For all these reasons, criminal indictments are among the most powerful statements we can make as a government. Fourth, unsealed indictments promote transparency. There will always be cases in which our ability to expose malicious cyber activity is limited by our obligation to protect intelligence sources and methods or sensitive ongoing investigations. But where we are able to do so, we strive to expose such schemes to the American people and to the international community. Attribution through detailed indictments educates the public about our adversaries' efforts and methods to spread disinformation, steal commercial technology, and target computer networks. Fifth, although our goal is to hold accountable in court those we charge with trade theft or cyber crimes, our investigations can provide critical support for the use of civil, diplomatic, economic, and military tools. Some thoughtful critics have criticized the department's so-called name and shame strategy on the theory that our indictments have failed to staunch the activity. But you can't separate our indictments from the broader array of tools our government now uses to counter malign cyber activity. These include freezing assets, or prohibiting transactions, or adding companies to the Department of Commerce entity list. As the National Security Advisor has confirmed, it also includes undertaking offensive cyber operations aimed at defending our national interests. Our tools also include other authorities that can block criminals' assets, restrict their access to the banking system, and prohibit them from freely engaging in trade. We developed this approach to address terrorism and terrorist financing. We are applying it to the cyber context as well. Finally, by using public law to emphasize the need to protect private US companies and victims against nation state actors, we help develop the framework for public-private cooperation that is critical to cybersecurity. The department tries to show through our actions how we can help companies respond to nation state threats they cannot face alone in a way that respects their status as victims. The department has developed strong relationships with the private sector based on our aggressive pursuit of criminal nation state conduct, ranging from cyber theft to information operations using third party social media platforms. Now, no one suggests seriously that we can prosecute our way out of this problem, but to dismiss the role that federal law enforcement plays in the government's shared fight against cyber-enabled threats is to unfairly discount and diminish our nation's powerful commitment to the rule of law, both within our borders and without. Before I conclude, I'd like to briefly address one final topic. That is the question of how we can respond to one of the latest and most potentially destabilizing manifestations of great power competition in cyberspace, namely 
our adversary's use of covert information operations to influence and subvert our nation's democratic institutions, including specifically our elections. The Department of Justice has been instrumental in revealing that foreign actors create and operate false U.S. personas on internet sites designed to attract U.S. citizens and spread divisive messages. They also fabricate news stories in an effort to discredit American individuals or organizations. In the process, they reach unprecedented numbers of Americans covertly without ever setting foot on U.S. soil. These deceitful actions are especially pernicious because they seek to weaponize our traditions of free speech, open inquiry, and individual conscience against us as part of a broader project to undermine the very concept of self-government. Foreign attempts to pollute our public discourse are nothing new. These efforts have taken many forms across the decades, from covert funding of newspapers and covert financing of front groups to creating and spreading fake internal government communications. Our traditional response has been one to require transparency. The Foreign Agents Registration Act, for FARA, for example, requires persons who engage in certain conduct as agents of foreign principles to register with the Justice Department, to file periodic reports thereafter, and to include a conspicuous statement disclosing that relationship on any materials disseminated by the agent on behalf of the foreign principal. FARA's purpose is to ensure that the American public and our lawmakers know the source of information that is provided at the behest of a foreign principal, where that information may be intended to influence U.S. public opinion, policy, and laws. The statute enhances the public's and the government's ability to evaluate such information. Our recent indictments exposing Russian malign influence activity fall within the same heritage. Uncovering and disclosing such malign activity after it has happened is not a panacea, however, especially where public dis disclosure of a foreign influence operation could amplify it or could create undue public harm or confusion or could compromise intelligence sources and methods. That raises obvious questions. In defending our elections, are we limited to enforcing federal disclosure laws and other federal criminal laws that address foreign interference in our elections? And are we limited to uncovering and disclosing such conduct only after it occurs? Or can we take affirmative action to prevent covert cyber-enabled foreign influence campaigns that are designed to attack and undermine our elections through the weaponization of speech? I think the answer to that last question is yes. If non-US persons outside the United States are covertly interfering in our elections, whether through malicious cyber activity or covert operations using social media, the government can act to prevent that conduct consistent with the First Amendment. The fact is, it has been settled law for over a century that non-US persons located outside the United States have no rights under the First Amendment. Foreign governments similarly lack First Amendment protection. The more difficult question is whether hypothetical US government efforts outside of our borders to block, 
or target such activity would impact the First Amendment rights of U.S. persons who are potential consumers of the covert foreign dissemination, or for that matter, the free speech rights of U.S. persons whose own online speech may be amplified by covert foreign activity, as where uh, covert foreign controlled accounts disseminate the content using bots. In a line of cases stretching back several decades, the Supreme Court has indicated that the First Amendment encompasses a right to receive information, that is, a right of a would-be recipient of information that is independent of any right possessed by the speaker. Hypothetical activity by the US government to prevent foreign dissemination of information to the American public could, therefore, implicate the First Amendment rights of US citizens and residents to receive information. In my view, however, such hypothetical activity would likely not violate the First Amendment where it targets messaging covertly disseminated by a foreign government and or its agents seeking to interfere with the US election and where our government's actions are based exclusively on the foreign source of the information. That is because the Supreme Court precedent suggesting that Americans might have a right to receive foreign political propaganda and circumscribing the government's ability to limit the stock of information from which members of the public may draw when making voting decisions presuppose that the recipient can weigh the information he receives in light of the source of that information, so as to evaluate the import of the propaganda. The calculus is very different where the foreign actors have deceitfully misattributed information in a manner designed to mislead rather than to inform. The First Amendment does not provide a right to receive covert foreign propaganda. Otherwise, disclosure statutes like FARA would be unconstitutional. Hypothetical US government activity would likely be consistent with the First Amendment, even where it involved action to prevent foreign governments and their agents from covertly amplifying the online speech of Americans. The speech of Americans is, of course, fully protected by the First Amendment. The government thus could not remove or impede the online communications of a US person. But such a person has no constitutional right to amplification by a foreign government, which itself, of course, is without constitutional rights. The Department of Justice has previously expressed the view that a US person has no First Amendment right to speak on behalf of a foreign nation on the theory that the US person's speech in that context isn't his speech at all, but rather that of his foreign master's unprotected voice. In much the same way, a US person's ability to speak is not impaired by the denial of amplification from a foreign nation that lacks First Amendment rights, at least where the amplification conceals the role of the foreign nation. I should emphasize that my thinking here is tentative and the context is hypothetical. Moreover, my thinking assumes two important factors, namely first, hypothetical US government activity would target covert acts by a foreign government and or its agents, and second, our activity would focus on protecting the integrity of the US electoral system, though the analysis for covert foreign speech relating to political issues generally may well follow a similar track. Under these circumstances, US government activity to regulate harm 
from foreign misinformation would be on the most solid ground. So let me close by emphasizing that how we respond to the challenges posed by this new era of great power competition in cyberspace will have far-reaching consequences. As our adversaries use fraud, theft, and deception to project their power and to undermine internationally supported norms, I'm reminded of the words of US Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson. Writing in the wake of the Second World War, when the global community faced a different set of emerging challenges, Justice Jackson noted that, quote, we are put under a heavy responsibility to see that our behavior during this unsettled period will direct the world's thought toward a firmer enforcement of the laws. I can think of no more poetic a description of our duty today. We too face an uncertain future and we too must act in accordance with law, ensuring that everything we do in these unsettled times directs the world's thoughts toward a firmer enforcement of the laws. Thank you to every single one of you for everything you do to aid in that noble effort. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Rahman. That was a terrific, terrific beginning. He has so nicely framed how the internet challenges our traditional notions of jurisdiction, international relations, security, intellectual property, privacy, speech, and the elections. You know, it was once said that cyberspace is not a place. And the word cyberspace actually comes to us from science fiction. But I think as Mr. Rahman has so ably demonstrated that it is no longer science fiction, but it is a reality. Or as Alberto said, in real life. So we now move to the second phase of our program. We'll be having two breakout sessions, one on the legal frameworks, both international and regional, in terms of cybercrime and internet regulation, and a second, uh, referenced by Mr. Rahman, on election security. So these rooms are listed in your program, but they're both across the atrium from where you had your uh, coffee this morning. And you have a chance to choose between either of these, and we'll have more breakout sessions as we go through the day. And again, you can choose or you can wander in and between the breakout sessions, whatever your attention span may be. So again, please join me in thanking Mr. Rahman for kicking off the conference. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.